Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm super pumped to have the kids here with us this morning. We brought you out of the basement to be with us. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? And, and welcome to everyone joining us online. If you would, find a Bible. If you brought one with you. If you didn't, there's one uh, that should be underneath the seat in front of you. And turn to Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 26. Now, I made it super easy on you this morning. It should literally be on page one of that Bible. It's probably on page one of your Bible, too, if you uh, brought one of your own. For the summer, or really more like the month of July, we are kind of taking a break from a specific series. I mean, we're just kind of calling it in generally the summer series. We just finished going through Acts, if you're a guest with us. We've been through it almost for a year. I think we started in the fall of last year and just finished last week. Um, so we're, we're taking a tiny kind of month-long break, partly because of we just finished the long series, partly because of uh, with so many guest preachers coming in, trying to kind of make a cohesive series. Uh, didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but what we'll always, always, always be doing is exegetical preaching. So you, you can be sure if you show up here on Sunday morning, we're going to be opening the word. We're going to be trying to decide what does God have for us from this. Uh, I'm not going to be up here saying, you know, this summer we're going through uh, summer at the movies, and this morning I'm going to talk about Lord of the Rings and why I love it so much. Right? That's not going to happen here. So this morning's message is entitled Imago Dei, which I know already some of you are like, what? It's a Latin phrase. It means the image of God. It's what people say when they want to sound fancy. I want to talk about this idea that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And I, and I bring it up not to say uh, we all need to speak in Latin and say Imago Dei and be really smart, but if you hear another preacher talk about it, you see it in an article online or another resource that you can know exactly what they're talking about. And that's a unique privilege that we as people have that no other created creature has. And you say, okay, fair, we're made in the image of likeness of God. Jeff, good. Why should I care? And as I was thinking about that and I was writing all these reasons down, I thought to myself, someone has probably said this in a much more kind of eloquent, better, better way. And sure enough, there is. And so I'm just going to let him say it. His name's Dr. Kenneth A. Matthews. He's a professor of Old Testament, and he's author of one of the most widely respected commentaries on Genesis. There's something kind of pastors universally geek out about. It's Bible commentaries. So he wrote one of the uh, more famous ones on Genesis. He says this about this idea of being made in the image and likeness of God. Theologically, it is essential for interpreting the Christian faith with its proclamation regarding human life, the universal sinfulness of mankind, and the sole resolution of sin through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do you need to know about the image and likeness of God to understand your need for Jesus and to be saved and all of that good stuff? No, obviously, right? Obviously not. But does it help? I think so. My hope is that it will add some, some depth to us, that in seeing 
uh, maybe another thread of redemptive history or through another light. And in the way it culminates in what Jesus did for us on the cross and the perfect life he lived, that Jesus would be more glorified in our hearts. Or in other words, that it would stir up our affections for Jesus. That's my hope for this morning. Now, a lot of ideas are thrown around about what does it exactly mean that we're made in the image of likeness of God? And maybe you've heard other preachers preach on it. I'm not here to, to slam anyone or dog them or anything like that. But um, these are some, some common reasons I hear or some kind of implications. Uh, morality, our sense of right and wrong, our rationality, our ability to reason, our spirituality, our ability to relate to God, the sense of uh, right and wrong, justice and injustice, aesthetics like art and music. These are all probably true aspects of being made in the image of God and certainly are all things that separate us from uh, other animals or other created beings. But I would argue none of them capture the main kind of thrust or main sense. And the example I, I kind of thought of is it seems like angels check a lot of these boxes like morality and reasoning and different things like that but aren't made in the image of God. So image of God must be more than that. And ultimately, my kind of what I'm arguing this morning or what I'm teaching this morning is going to be summarized in a phrase that you're going to hear over and over and over this morning that was seared into my brain by one of my seminary professors. His name's Dr. Brent Oakwin, and it's this. That being made in the image of likeness in God, first and foremost, means that we're to be the visible representation of the invisible God. We're the visible representation of the invisible God. So that's our, our one kind of big takeaway and where we're going today. If there's ever something you were going to write down, that would be it. If there's ever something you were going to memorize, that would be it. If there was one takeaway, that would be it. So to do that and to kind of get there, structure is going to be a little different this morning than normal. Normally, uh, the, the sermon on Sunday morning comes in kind of a nice package, and, and here's our three points, and this is how you apply it, boom, boom. Um, we're still going to do that, but first I just want to talk about it in the sense of if you were picking up your Bible and reading Genesis 1, your first step wouldn't be, okay, let's apply it. Your first step would be, let's read it and understand the author's intent for us, and then from there we'll draw uh, intended meaning and from that intended meaning, how do we apply this to our life? So uh, first, we'll start with what's the author's intended meaning, and then we'll go to those timeless principles and uh, kind of how we apply it to our life today. Um, and then I'll have three specific points. There's the three points that every, every pastor has to have, right? <laughs> how this idea of being made in the image of likeness of God establishes our identity and worth, dictates how we view and treat others, and third, points to the perfect image bearer of God. But before we dive into all of that, let's pray together and just ask God for his help this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us all to be together this morning, both services, kids included. Pray that you'd do a work in me, do a work in us, that we can understand your word this morning. Help me to accurately... Um, Interpret and teach your word. Help us all to come this morning to you hungry and expecting your word. You describe your word as um, 
tasting like honey, sweeter than honey, and more precious than gold. I pray that we would uh, see it that way this morning and and give it the kind of attention and, and response that it would require of us. I ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. So hopefully you found Genesis 1, verse 26 by now. Again, it's only on page one if you haven't found your way there. I'm going to almost go verse by verse, uh, probably a couple verses at a time, starting in verse 26, and then we'll talk about it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here we have uh, this passage, and again, um, just like we were reading this at home, our kind of first goal, our first question is, what's, what's the author's, both the human author and the Holy Spirit, what's his intended meaning for us? Because if we're allowed to just make up whatever meaning we want, it's kind of no point. We could just make it up. We don't even have to read the Bible. So what is, what's God's intended meaning that we're supposed to get out of this? How, how would the original audience understood what they're talking about? Well, first, let me give you kind of the background. Okay, what happened in the first 25 verses of the Bible? So God in this is creating everything. And we're on day six now. In the first five days, he created the universe, light and darkness, water, land, plants, animals, and all the other living things except people, which he creates in our passage this morning. Then we come to verse 26, which must have been a very puzzling statement for the original audience. I'm talking about people who who only had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. God is creating man, but he says he's going to do it in our image and our likeness. And that suggests that there's multiple people involved, right? There's a, a plurality, there's a unity within the Godhead. And you wouldn't have been able to get it just from reading this one verse, but uh, having the New Testament and having read it, we have the benefit of seeing, oh, he's talking about the Trinity. And here we have an example of, here's God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're kind of getting a glimpse into some dialogue amongst themselves within the Trinity. We're also told in verse 26, and we kind of get to our main point this morning, and in verse 27, that we've been made in the image and likeness of God. Now, obviously, from the context and what we just read, it includes some sort of dominion or ruling over creatures at least. But as I'm reading it, I'm asking myself, is that it? Or is there more to it? And again, I've already told you what I believe to be the significance of the phrase and how they would have understood it in the ancient Near East is as the visible representations of the invisible God. You see, these two Hebrew words that are translated image and likeness were used in a couple of different ways, too. So you think of um, uh, also in the ancient Near East, with rulers that represented their deity. So I I think of Pharaoh, for example, right? He He was a man and a person, and he ruled Egypt, but he was also supposed to represent uh, something like Horus in life and Osiris in death. There was a, uh, the language reflects this idea of, of this royal figure 
representing their God as this appointed ruler. Those same words are also used of statues that kings would put up in conquered lands. And they'd remind the conquered nations about who now ruled over them, who now owns this land, who now is in charge. To uh, illustrate this concept, I'm going to need maybe four volunteers, maybe some kids who want to be brave and go up on stage and can listen to direction. <laughs> okay, we only got one so far, so Aaron. <laughs> yeah, Bryson, is that you? Is that Nora back there? Yeah, you can come too. We need one more. Joshua? All right. Yeah, why don't you guys come on up? Can we have a hand for our brave volunteers? So, I think Nora, I'm going to crown you Queen Nora. What is your kingdom called, Queen Nora? The land of ice cream and cookies? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and with me, I have three perfect representations of what Nora looks like. Do you all agree that that's true? Does this, does this look like you? Yeah. <laughs> it does? Would you believe me if I told you I made these myself? Yeah, you would. I would too. <laughs> so before we, we get into that, Nora is, is queen of, of her land of, of, what did I just say, cookies? Ice cream and cookies. And she has a big army and a lot of people, and she needs more land. And so she's going to come conquering. And Joshua and Aaron and Bryson all have their own countries that just so happen to be smaller and in the way of Nora's conquering. So Bryson, I'm going to have you here. And... Joshua, I'm going to put you here. And then Aaron, if you want to hang out on those steps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'll be, your, uh, I'll be your little mason that makes you little statues. So Nora, why don't you start down there? So the great kings and their great nations would come from the north in Israel, right? Whether it's Assyria or Babylon or Persia or um, Greece or whoever it is. So Queen Nora's coming with her, her giant armies, and she's here to, to conquer lands. She comes across Bryson's country. She conquers her older brother's country, which in a, in a cruel twist of fate. <laughs> and now, the army's feeling pretty good. We got some resources, but not enough. And Queen Nora's thinking, I want some more land, right? But how do we remind the people of who's in charge? Who's the new boss? And so Nora would have a statue made. It would be put up in the new land. You want to hold on to this? Mm -hmm. To remind the people that this is now Queen Nora's land. And whenever they looked upon the statue, they would see this person's in charge. She would be honored. They would uh, see her when they looked at that statue. And now, Nora doesn't have to be physically here anymore. She can continue on with her conquest, and she comes to Joshua's land, and her army conquers Joshua again, and same thing. They're enjoying the land and the resources and all of the treasure they uh, captured, but they're still feeling pretty good, so she wants to keep moving on. So she puts up another statue. Now, Bryson, do you, do you remember who's in charge of your land? Yep. <laughs> Who? 
<laughs> it's Nora, right? Because she left a statue there. And so we're going to keep going and keep conquering in Aaron's uh, nation. Oh, no, your crown <laughs> is the last one to be conquered. And having conquered the ancient Near East, Nora's ready to go home. And she's set up all of these statues. And now all of a sudden, instead of Nora's face and picture just being in the north, now all of a sudden, everywhere you go in the ancient Near East, you can see Nora, right? She's filled the land with her image and likeness. That's all I needed. Thanks, guys. You can keep the crown if you want. Yeah, can we give him a hand? Yeah, I can take those of you if you want. So that's what would happen, right? These, these big kings would come from the north and would conquer these lands and would set up statues for themselves in those lands to remind people. And we have the same purpose. We were created to represent God here on earth, to remind others of God and remind them of God's dominion over everything. In other words, we are the visible representation of the invisible God. Now I want us to see how this connects with the next verse. If you want to look back down at your Bible at verse 28. God blessed them, he's talking to Adam, he even said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth and the question is why? Just like our conquering queen Nora this morning filled the land with her image and likeness, God is filling his creation with his image and likeness, you and me. The master plan for Adam and Eve, even, even before the fall, when everything was perfect, the master plan for Adam and Eve is not that it would just be them two and they would stay in the little garden that God had created, but that they would multiply, they'd continue to order creation and expand that garden until God's image bearers filled the earth. And again, we're, we're told to fill rule over, subdue the earth, not as kings and not for ourselves, but as a, as a vice ruler underneath the true ruler of earth, God. There's a few more verses about the sixth day, so let's go through those, and then we'll talk about what we're supposed to do about all this. So again, look down at verse 29. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So in, in verse 29 to 30, we're uh, told... Uh, kind of a historical fact about how the world functioned before the fall, that everyone and everything and every animal, including us, were vegetarians. And then after the fall, God made animal skin clothing for Adam and Eve. And you're kind of thinking, oh, where did those come from? And then in, in Old Testament, there was a few restrictions on types of meat uh, people could eat. And by the New Testament, Paul is saying, hey, you can eat 
any meat, even if it's sacrificed to idols, as long as it's uh, okay with your conscience. And that's true today. So um, my purpose in, in saying that or teaching that, I know some of you guys are kind of like sweating, like, is this it for meat? My, my point is that is not to say you can't eat meat. Eat the meat and, and enjoy it to the glory of God. But instead to give you a historical fact that before the fall, uh, there was no killing of any animal for food, which is obviously very different from today, right? Even not just us, but in the animal kingdom, this sort of killing or be killed is, is kind of the rule. And my point in that is the world before the fall, the world, how it will be when Jesus comes back in the new heavens and new earth is very different. Though it's the same earth is very different and will be very different than it is today. Finally, I just want to point out that in verse 31, this is the first day that at the end of the day when he had finished doing his creative work that God had said, and it's very good. So on the first five days, he finishes and says, it's good. On the sixth day, he says, it's very good. Now, if you look at the the next verse, it's the start of chapter two is our next verse. I know we didn't read it out loud, but it says creation is finished. So on day six is when God completed that special creative work and was good, but wasn't very good until it was under the care of God's royal humanity, his visible representations. And now that that has happened, it is very good. That, I think, is the intended meaning or main thrust, is that we are the visible representations of the invisible God here on earth, given authority over the earth, not for ourselves, but to steward what God has given us. That was our first kind of chunk, first half. We've done our best to uncover the, uh, the meaning of the text, what God intended us to take from it. Our second chunk is this, okay, why does it matter? So we have this idea, we're visible representations of the invisible God. What kind of timeless principles are we drawing from that or what do we do about it? And the first one is this, being visible representations of the invisible God establishes our identity and worth. It establishes our identity and worth. There are a lot of things people in our culture either are tempted to or do find their identity in, right? For some of us, it has to do with kind of our status or our abilities, being smart, being kind, being godly, being wealthy. The problem with those things is there's always someone who is working harder. There's always someone who's smarter. There's always someone who's wealthier. Sometimes it's your sexual orientation or gender, that a specific facet of someone has all of a sudden become the kind of overarching identity that they live by. That could be a a whole sermon in itself, and that's literally all I'm going to say about it today. Some things are super healthy and, and a natural part of your identity, and it's fine until it becomes the primary thing. So being a mom or a dad is a good thing, and it's a good thing to invest a lot in your children. But then when you become the queen mother, and my children must love me, my children must obey, and I am devastated when they don't, well, then it becomes a problem. Or work is a good thing, and you should work hard and and do what you promised to do for your employer. But all of a sudden, when getting passed up for that promotion or that raise, becomes devastating or becomes all-consuming, then all of a sudden it becomes a problem. 
And here we're called to ground our identity and how we think about ourselves as God's image bearers. So we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to see ourselves as the visible representation of the invisible God. But where are you at now? How do you think about yourself now? Do you think about yourself that way, first and foremost, as God's image bearer, or something else? That's our identity, and because of that, or, or maybe another way to think about it is, is that's how we find our worth, or where we find our worth, not our skills or our choices we've made or the stuff we have. And I hope that encourages you. So maybe, maybe some of us, because of choices we made, because of the gifts God has given us, when we compare ourselves to others, we feel like we don't really stack up. We feel like less. I hope it's encouraging to you. Those things aren't where we find our worth. It's being made in the image of God. Maybe you have the opposite problem. Maybe you look at yourself and you're like, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty wealthy. Like, our family's got it going on. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I've, I've never murdered anyone, you know, that sort of thing. When I look around, I'm like, yeah, our life's better than that. I hope it humbles you. Because even when you stack up well, that's not where our worth comes from. It's not from those things or those things you've done or any of those things. It comes from being made in the image of God. That's where our value is, is in God's image. And even today, most people in our culture think people are more valuable than animals or stuff, right? This is, for the most part, universally accepted. So kids, I got another uh, kind of question for you. Raise your hand if you have a pet at home, either a dog or a cat or goats or something like that. Good, yeah, there's a good number of you. Keep your hand up if you think if your parents had to get rid of you or your pets, that they'd get rid of you. <laughs> no one? That's good. <laughs> Why is it? Why is it that no one raised their hand and were like, you know what? The dog is less work, right? None of us even went through that thought of like, yeah, the dog's less work. We'll keep the dog. Because we know that people, there's something intrinsically valuable about people. We'll take it up a notch. Let's say that I am the proud owner of, of a horse named Fusaichi Pegasus. It's a Japanese horse. Fusaichi Pegasus. Again, sermon prep. I didn't know any of this before this past week. This is the most valuable horse in the world. It was sold for $70 million, and his stud fees are $150,000. So he literally makes more money in a day, like way more money in a day than I do in a whole year. Let's pretend I own this horse. Um, let's say I came up to you and said, hey, do you think I should get rid of the horse or my one-year-old charity? I'll, none of you would be like, hmm, let me think. Right? You would all be like, well, obviously the horse. But the question is why? Right? No, none of us were like, well, let's get out your budget and see. I mean, like, the horse can make you a lot of money, like charity. She's kind of expensive, right? No, because we know because Charity, my little one-year-old daughter, is made in the image and likeness of God, she is worth much, much more than $70 million. I had an uh, animal ethics professor who was an atheist 
in, in undergrad, so this is when I was studying math at Purdue University, it wasn't in seminary, um, I had an, an atheist animal ethics professor who said that if a dog and a child were drowning in a lake and he only had time to save one, that he would flip a coin to decide which one to save. Which I know is a little like, like, whoa. Why would he say that? I think because he's genuinely being intellectually honest with himself. Like, if you don't believe this, and you don't believe in God, then there's nothing to say that we are intrinsically valuable, that people are equal, equal rights for all, the sanctity of human life. All those things are Christian ideas grounded in this idea that we are made in the image of likeness of God, grounded in this idea of because God is so worthy. And all these things our culture holds so dear to, like equality for all, whether it's uh, regardless of race or gender or disabilities or contribution to society, this idea is grounded in this being made in the image and likeness of God. And when he didn't have that, he couldn't tell the difference between us or an animal and in our worth. And it's because all people share that worth, that comes to our second point, that it dictates how we view and treat others. It dictates how we view and treat others. I'm going to give a couple examples of how the Bible grounds some ethical commands in this truth, and then we'll uh, talk more about how it applies to our life. So uh, first, Genesis 9-6, it's going to be, when we flip to these couple different places, you're welcome to go there in your Bible, but it's also going to be uh, on the screen. So Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Again, hopefully murder isn't a great temptation for us where, where someone's like, oh, I shouldn't murder, okay. But the reason I bring it up is to say um, the reason we're not to harm others given in this passage, even though I think there are many, the reason given in this passage is because that person is made in the image and likeness of God. Because when you do that, you are harming an image bearer of God. So the principle we're drawing from this is knowing that people are God's image bearers should change how we view and treat others. We see this in the New Testament also in James chapter 3, verse 9. Um, I thought about giving you more of the context just for the sake of time I didn't, but he's, he's talking about the tongue in this verse. So with it, again, the tongue, our speech, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In other words, cursing people or wishing ill on people is, is wrong. Why? Because they are made in the likeness of God. So there's a lot of different areas that impacts, right? How we treat others, how we speak about others, how we think about others. Well, let's get more specific for our lives. So it calls us to love and serve others well, despite how they've treated us or any merits of their own, but simply because they bear God's image. How do you need to do that in your life? Or, or what specific way are you being called this morning to see others as God's image bearers? Kids, let me talk to you again. What if someone is mean to you at school or picks on you? Or if you're at home 
I know none of your siblings would ever do this, but they hit you or are mean to you. Does that give you a right to hit them back? Another thought I had when I was just, uh, just thinking of, of some examples, what about your parents? I think, I think kids have this unique perspective of getting to see a lot of, a lot of your parents' shortcomings and sins and faults and, in all these different ways. Because of your parents' imperfections, does that give you license to disrespect them, even though God tells you you should, right? right? Ultimately, regardless of those shortcomings, because they're made in God's image and because God commands us to, we obey our parents. And that's hard, right? I'd be the first one to admit I'm, I'm uh, an adult. I have my own child now, and I would say it's still hard for me to uh, respect and honor my parents well. Adults, we have these same problems. They just look in more like adulty ways or more socially acceptable ways. Is it that, that person at work that's always unreasonable, your boss, that neighbor, that uh, when you think about them, you primarily think about them as they held me up on that project or they always drive me nuts and not primarily as this is a, an image bearer of God that I need to treat with respect. Can we in today's society... Treat one another with respect despite disagreements in status, political affiliation, disagreements on current events and politics, simply because they're made in the image of God. And any thought of, of using someone, taking advantage of someone, objectifying someone should be utterly appalling to us. Why? Because they are image bearers of God. So those are just a, a few examples of how you might apply it to your life. The, the point in bringing all those things up is, is to help you kind of think through, okay, I want to be a doer of the word and not just a hear. How am I going to do the word in my life this week? That's kind of two as invisible, visible representations of the invisible God. I knew I was going to do that once today. As visible representations of the invisible God, it should dictate how we view and treat others. That leads us to three. This idea of being made in the image of likeness of God points us to the perfect image bearer of God. Points us to the perfect image bearer of God, which is, of course, Jesus. Toward the beginning of the lesson, I read that quote, basically told everyone it was important for understanding what Jesus did, and I want to talk about that now. And we mentioned Genesis 9 and James 3, and there are other similar passages, that even after the fall, we are obviously still image bearers of God. But oftentimes, we end up reflecting other things, or not reflecting God perfectly. It's like a mirror that was... Uh, reflecting you perfectly, and we are those mirrors. But then all of a sudden, after the fall, we're kind of got our angle wrong, or it's, it's gotten dusty, and it's hard to see the image, or it's pointing at the wrong thing, it needs to be fixed. We are those broken mirrors. And ultimately, by ourselves, we can't fulfill that purpose that we were given of filling the earth with God's image bears. Jesus came to be that unique, perfect, visible representation of the invisible God. I want to look at two verses together to kind of show this. 
The first one's 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, and this is the point I really want to hit on, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Look at also Hebrews 1, verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus is the image of God, but not just any image of God. He is the exact representation of him and his nature, the radiance of the glory of God, the visible representation of the invisible God. And when Jesus lived that perfect life we couldn't and died on the cross for our sins, he functioned as that perfect image of God that Adam and Eve and all of us were supposed to have been, but ever since the fall have not been able to be. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we get to participate in that and one day look forward to the future of being made into that perfect image of Christ and participating in that future life and resurrection of the Lord. That's our destiny as believers in Jesus Christ. And when I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about Romans 8, 29. So we talk about Romans 8, 28 a lot, right? Let's just, which is fine, and it's a great verse, and it's, you know, it's great. But let's not forget the next verse, right? Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, <clears throat> excuse me, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. God is using all things and he's promised he will. He's destined us to be conformed to that image of his son, Jesus, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many perfect image bearers of God. But friends, this promise is for believers. And if that's not you, I'd invite you to take that step this morning of putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you say, I'm not ready. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Dave. Talk to someone with a name tag on. Talk to some random person. Literally anyone would be just excited, willing, love to talk with you about that. Let me just close with this. We're all visible representations of the invisible God, whether we want to be or not. We don't have a choice. The choice is, do we run from that calling or do we seek out God's help and trust in his perfect plan and perfect example to help us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your redemptive plan and just all these different kind of threads we can see. Jesus is the perfect lamb. He's the perfect image bearer of you. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He paid the price that we couldn't. Thank you for creating all of us in your image and that the worth that gives us. That It, it doesn't have to do with our own ability to contribute, our own talents, our own stuff. Ultimately, our worth comes from you. Help us to see and treat one another truly like we bear your image. We confess that so often when we're thinking through a situation or, or thinking about ourselves, uh, the thought of how to best represent you to the world, 
doesn't even cross our mind. Show the world who you are and your glory through us. Thank you for the time today to be all together, both services and kids. As a church family, I'm super just excited to all be together. And I, I pray for our, our weekends, our time together, and that you would just help us to enjoy one another and bless our fellowship and our, and our holiday weekend. We ask and pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.